0: Good morning everybody. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. I love to see people talking and I'm glad we have a friendly church and I'm glad that you are here. Just a few announcements. Moms and dads, right after the service you need to go downstairs with your children because there's a practice going to be happening right after church and I think some people need to leave quickly so just Go on downstairs and practice. We have communion today and just a couple of books. We have book table downstairs, so I'm always bringing books in. You've seen a little pamphlet. I bought 50 of these, Living Above Your Circumstances. I think it's good. But two other books that have the worst title ever, Depression, A Way Out, it's not really how to get out of depression totally? I mean, not to totally get out of depression. Anyway, it's about how to live a life, walking uprightly and purely, with some really good examples in it. And I would recommend this to you. Um, There'll be downstairs on the table. I find this very, very helpful to control my Christian life of how I can easily fool myself. You know, things like, "Oh, you drove me up the wall," no you gave me an opportunity to show that i have an up the wall kind of anger it's like jesus christ did not die to pay for our boo-boos our personalities our issues jesus christ died to pay for our sins and when we confess our i mean when we confess our sins you can confess your boo-boos all you want he's not going to cleanse you and purify you from those But by calling sin, sin, and getting beneath these societal niceties we put on our sinful behavior, we can do what Barney Fife said and nip it in the bud and find healing for it and forgiveness. So I would really encourage you, they're simple books, but very deep in it.
1: draw your attention here to a couple things as we get, begin to worship in your worship folder. Gives you some direction of where we're going to go with this communion. You can begin by turning in your hymn book to a hymn 98 and uh, we'll sing that in just a moment. When Blake's done blessing the, the bread and the fruit of the vine um, we'll direct this side to come forward, get both elements and then turn around and return to your seat and likewise to the middle and this side and then we'll all uh, commune with Christ together in an orderly way. In this hymn that we'll be singing in a moment though prior to communion as we'll we'll be called to rise and sing in it is a, a, a plea as we sing to the fount of blessing that is in Christ Jesus, to which we'll remember indeed today. It has a strange word for many of us in there in the second verse. It says the Ebenezer. uh, The main point of that is just a point of remembrance. When Christ called his church together to, to do this and to continue to do this communion, he said to do this in remembrance of me. What are we going to remember about Christ? Well, quite a few things, that's for sure. But today, I want to draw our attention to our memory verse and meditation verse that we have from Ephesians 4, 31. And ultimately, let's just focus on the last part of 32. It tells us in 31 <coughs> to let anger and bitterness and wrath go. And then calls us to be kind, then one to another, being giving somebody something they don't deserve is the idea of kindness. And then this phrase that really drives me in thinking about the concept of forgiveness, and that is forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the highest thing, to be forgiven by God in Christ. Christ Jesus, to which we will remember today. And on that basis, there is really no reason for those that are forgiven in Christ not to grant forgiveness, truly forgiveness for whatever someone may have done against you or failed to do, accomplish. Ultimately, we have been forgiven of the greatest, heinous act, and that is a sin against the Sovereign Lord that is worthy of death. and Christ paid that death for us, to which we will indeed remember today the true forgiveness, the covering of our sin in Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm going to give you a moment now to prepare your heart for communion. We'll do this privately, right where you're at, before we sing. And then I'll pray for us corporately as we're prepared then to commune with Christ let's go to the Lord in prayer you first privately and then I'll pray for us corporately let us pray Father, we have gathered together as your saints, praising your holy name for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray that it will not leave our thoughts lightly, but we would truly remember the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus to truly sing of your grace, of your streams of mercy, And may it respond in great praise to your holy name. Knowing that in Christ it is truly finished. All is accomplished. And we can stand before you in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ because of your great gift. And your mercy in taking our condemnation and putting it on Christ. I pray as we gather together and commune and think on these things that we have been commanded to do by our sovereign Lord, I pray that it be a great time of strength and blessing for your people to truly remember the communion we have with you because of our mediator, Jesus Christ our Lord. What a great blessing it is, what a great privilege it is, not just for this day, for all eternity. Father, I pray that your name would be hallowed in our life. I pray that our response would be great blessing of who you are, great joy and satisfaction in in what you have given to us in Christ Jesus. I pray that your name would be exalted not just in this day, but in every day to come, and even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.
2: Well, good morning. Let's take our hymn books and stand and turn to number 98. And we'll sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We have all received grace after grace from his fullness. John one sixteen, number 98. A moment now to uh, bless the, this time of communion and um, just ask the Lord to examine our hearts here during this time. So Let's pray. Dearly, Father, Lord, uh, we are grateful and thankful for this time, Lord, that we can uh, remember the price that was paid for our salvation. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that you would uh, examine our hearts here in these moments, Lord. We don't want to take communion unworthily, Lord, and so yes, Lord. we ask that uh, the Holy Spirit would examine our hearts and bring up any uh, unconfessed sin, Lord, and that we would confess that to you now. Lord, we pray that uh, uh, in our thankfulness for the price that was paid, your body that was broken for us, Lord, and the suffering on the cross, and Lord, the blood uh, that was spilled on our behalf, Lord, and that um, there's no salvation apart from the blood and how that Provided admission of sin, Lord, we uh, praise you during this time of communion, Lord. May we not uh, take this uh, haphazardly, Lord, that uh, we would um, focus on on Christ during this time and that you would be ultimately magnified. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen.
1: That is ours in Christ Jesus isn't God just taking the filth of your sin and sweeping it under the rug to be pointed out at some point in the future. No, they're they're forgiven as far as the East is from the West. It's it's an immeasurable amount. And the reason is is that it has actually been taken care of and accomplished by Jesus Christ, both in his his life and in his death. And so we come together to, as Christ called us to do as the church, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of Christ. First for the life of Christ, that perfect righteous life given to all who repent and believe on Jesus Christ. Receive his righteous robe to stand before God in perfection. Do this in remembrance of him. The second element, of course, is the payment of that penalty, that propitiation, that blood that would cover all your sin again do this in remembrance of Christ
2: amen well let's stand and let's turn to number 83 and we'll sing be thou my vision I have set the Lord always before me Psalm 168 be thou my vision number 83 all four verses. 233 233 Jesus keep me near the cross to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his
3: cross Colossians 1:20 <laughs>
4: beloved church. Please turn with me to Psalm 104, Psalm 104. In your pew Bible, you can find this psalm on pages 502 and 503. There's little need for me to add any words to this glorious psalm which glorifies our God as both creator and sustainer of the universe. Let's read together. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messenger's winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thundering they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of Yahweh are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Yahweh, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures." Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships, and Leviathan, with which you have made to play with. These all look to you, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die, and return to their dust." When you send forth your winds, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of Yahweh endure forever. May Yahweh rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing praise to Yahweh while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in Yahweh. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. Praise Yahweh. Let's pray. O Holy Father, how majestic is everything about you throughout the whole earth. Father, as we think about how every good and perfect gift comes from you, including the very food that we depend on to live, that this would spur us on to a deeper love for you, a love that causes us to strive to obey your commands. Please help us not to ask how close are we allowed to get to sin, but how far can we get away from it? I pray that that for those of us who are in Christ, that this glorious truth that one day we will get to behold him would cause us to treat all temptations for the utter foolishness and vanity that they are. Please help us to do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in the strong name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. Amen.
2: Let's stand once more and turn to number 79 in our hymn book, and we'll sing, The Lord's My Shepherd, I'll Not Want. A beautiful Scottish psalter. We'll sing it based on Psalm 23. We'll sing this to the Lord before the sermon. Psalm 23, number 79.
1: that you would know that indeed, remember that it does follow you all the days of your life and into eternity because of this one, Christ our Lord, who we'll look at t- 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 this morning from John chapter 21, really continuation of last week. John chapter 21, we're going to review the first narrative given here, In verses 1 through 14, (coughs) and I'd like to say a little bit more continuation from last week. If you remember this, as it's stated here, uh, notice verse 14, uh, this is a revelation, if you will, of Jesus Christ. It's when he reveals something to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. There is... More information that needs to be made clear, particularly in this new dynamic, if you will, that will continue throughout eternity now, Christ's post-resurrection. Remember, Jesus Christ came, took on human flesh, lived among us, and specifically to his disciples. He was with them. Uh, He taught them. For three years, they had been with him in a unique setting here, being trained directly and physically. Jesus had called them to follow him. That's what a disciple means. That's what a Christian is, someone who is following Christ, right? This is what it means to be saved, is is what these are called then to do. But in this post-resurrection now, Jesus is in his body, in this sense, is in a glorified state. As we've read in the previous chapter, in the previous two events that John uh, enumerates, Jesus just simply appears to his disciples behind locked doors. He is just made manifest. He doesn't have to have somebody unlock the doors. He just appears, materializes. He can exist in both a material and an immaterial domain, if you will. He is in a physical form before them. He invites Thomas to actually physically touch him, which Thomas doesn't do. Instead, Thomas confesses the truth that Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. But he invites him, and yet he just appears there, so there is a spiritual or immaterial aspect to Jesus simultaneously. He is in this glorified state and a, a better description, a little bit more detailed, but still mysterious to some degree. Uh, Paul simply calls it in First Corinthians 15 a spiritual body. has both those aspects. Over the course of 40 years, Days Jesus appears to his disciples. And from we can deduce from the scripture, it is only on this day, that is the first day of the week, that is the Lord's day, as it became known, that is the day in which God's people gathered together and worship his day of resurrection. And it is why we worship today, on this very day. It is not Sabbath, as some have made it out to be, that is different. This is the Lord's day. It is a unique day. It is a distinct day. It is what the symbol of the Sabbath pointed towards, and that is Jesus Christ, that we would have our refuge and rest in him and him alone. Now, John could have pointed out many of these manifestations or appearances of Christ to his disciples along that term. But he determined to enumerate just a few. And this one here we find in chapter 21, he says this is the third time. This is the third notable uh, appearance of Christ that he wants us to note here in his inner circle. And I think it's, it's put this way simply to emphasize there are some truths that need to be reemphasized and remembered to these disciples and all that would follow in their path in the unique way in which Christ will, um, uh, will work with the disciples to accomplish what he has called them to do. It is a different relationship than what they had experienced for three years, right? This is a different and this is, will be the relationship that will continue even to our day and thus is applicable to us as well. So to get the uh, overview of the teaching here, and this is a narrative I'll simply walk through. We've walked through about half of it. I'd like to finish it up today, but I'll read it in your hearing so that we can uh, be refreshed with the context of it. John chapter 21 and beginning with verse 1. After this, that is, after all that has occurred, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll go with they went out and got in the boat, and, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So? They cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will take your word and make it applicable to each one of us in the way we need to hear about from Christ today in this new relationship with all of those who follow Christ, this relationship that is brought about in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the equipping for his disciples to do the work that you've called us to do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I've mentioned here, this setting is in the Galilee area. Jesus had told his disciples to meet him there. We noted that last time. Peter, hanging out here in Galilee with some of the other disciples, he decided to go fishing, verse 3, and many others followed him. I kind of ended already on this note primarily last week and I just wanted to elaborate one other issue on this that is here is their, their work that they're doing. This is their occupation that these men were associated with, in particular fishing. But they had a calling from Jesus Christ. And I mind you this, all who are in Christ, are called. They're called and they have a specific test which Christ told them to do and he used this fishing occupation as an analogy. He says from now on, you remember Luke 5, he said you will be fishers of men. All of us have certain responsibilities and duties in this life, every one of us whatever you might think it might be. It might be working uh, for a particular firm, maybe you have your own business, maybe you're rearing children at home or taking care of this or that. There, There are so many duties and responsibilities that we have in this life. And I like to think of that in a term of occupation in the sense that that's what's occupying your time day to day. But never forget, those that are in Christ Jesus are called they have a vocation if you will and your calling is ultimately to follow Christ to obey him to be a disciple Paul would tell the church in Ephesians chapter 4 to then walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling to which you have been called that is allow your lifestyle to be such that that uh, indicates the calling that you really have ultimately, and that is to follow Jesus Christ. He calls you into his kingdom and equips you to do the work to which he has called you to do. This occupation that these men had in particular was fishing, but Jesus called them to be fishers of men. Oftentimes, and in most situations of life, uh, that that uh, dual aspect exists, your occupation, what you 're busy with, what you do have responsibilities for and which are important, but ultimately your calling, your vocation is to glorify God, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God and this isn 't just for these men; these are for, this is for all. That who are in Christ Jesus called to glorify him in all we do. In our text then, picking this up, Jesus is reminding them of what their true calling is. Notice verse 4. Jesus is on the, sh- on the shore. These disciples are out. In the sea, 100 yards off. The day was breaking, verse 4, the light was coming up. They had been out all night fishing. They didn't know it was Jesus on the shore. Jesus knew exactly who they were, but they they didn't know him. He was on the shore. It was a distance away. Jesus is also in his glorified state. And from what I can deduce for it, there is a correspondence of the body from what... uh, what he may have looked like at that time and what he looks like now, but yet there is some distinctions in which he needs to reveal himself to them, which he does here in just a bit. But nevertheless, notice the circumstance that was existing. it's, It's daylight. They've been out all night long. They've been fishing. And the result is they caught nothing and i mentioned this last week that you know he, this th- he brings them right back to the beginning of their calling right this is where jesus found them at first and where he called them and told them what their vocation really was going to be it was to preach the gospel so he so he kind of brings them back to that by another analogy and the same circumstance happens they're here Just like in Luke chapter 5, they have no fish. Jesus says to them, verse 5, Do you have any fish? He knows they don't have it. But he asks them this for a purpose. And in fact, notice the terminology. It's, it's kind of hard to tell in the English, but this word here for children in verse five, uh, it's, it's not really an endearing word that would normally be used. It's not pejorative by any means. It might be thought of, best I can think of in English, as, hey boys, you got any fish? That kind of thing. Or fellows. Or in English, you know, Britain English, lads, right? It, it's not all that endearing, e- endearing type uh terminology being used just hey uh you folks who have um it, it's it's not as if there's um, a, uh he's communicating at this point of who he is and who they are instead hey boys you got any fish and they answered notice here no he asked them this question i think for a clear purpose and that for them to recognize their insufficiency in and of themselves. And this is an important lesson for all disciples to have. For anybody to follow Christ, it it is paramount that we recognize our inefficiency, our lack of um, ability, if you will, our need to trust and rest in Christ. Now, as far as their occupation and their skill, They knew what they were doing. These were professional fishermen. These were not amateurs. They had been out working, not for a few hours, but all night. It is now the daybreak, if you will, and they have come up to nothing. And Jesus is pushing this point in and of themselves to remember their own weakness, to be aware of that. And it is important, if you're going to follow Christ, remember you'll need to do it in the strength that he he supplies. You don't have enough strength. And really it's kind of good news in a way, (laughs) because you think, well, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can really give up everything and follow Christ. I don't know if I could really be a disciple. Maybe that's for somebody who is super strong and super special. Let me tell you, these were not super strong and super special people. I mean, the leader of them all, Peter, he, he runs around always putting his foot in his own mouth, right? Makes all kinds of mistakes. He would just come off of denying the Lord. And then Thomas is mentioned as well who was skeptical of the teaching of the church when the church told him the church is gathered together and they tell him, and it's not just anyone, these are all of the disciples get together. Thomas says, no, no, he was here last week. Let me tell you what happened. And Thomas is like, oh, no, if if I can't do it, I'm not going to believe any one of you. That's a very weak place to be when the church is affirming <coughs> this truth about Christ. That's who these people were. And they found, and it's a tendency to do, I think, in human beings, for whatever reasons, part of our sinful flesh, to find strength in our in ourselves, to think that we can accomplish whatever in our own will and might. Now, I understand, and I'm... I understand why people do this. And so I'm not trying to say this as an illustration to um, criticize anyone. But in the aftermath of a disaster, whether it's a natural disaster or an act of terrorism, people have a tendency, human beings, to deceive themselves and declare that they are strong. I remember some lone gunman running around, just not far from my office, and shot through the windows of a recruiting station, got back in his car, and drove to a little base off of Amicola Highway and killed several servicemen. And the response to that is Chattanooga Strong. Again, I understand why you want to declare something like that, but in reality, you're pretty weak and vulnerable. You know that could happen at any time. Jesus would say, are you prepared? That, that would be the answer to it. You know, At any point in time, we, we are actually very vulnerable and very weak, and in part of our human self-sufficiency, we have this tendency to think how strong we really are when in reality we're not. You need to find strength in God and Him alone. Your, your strength is not great enough. In fact, that is a great thing for a disciple to learn. In fact, I'm reminded of this (coughs) biblical worldview that the Apostle Paul taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You might want to turn there to underline something. 1 Corinthians 12, if you don't have it memorized, it would be a good one to memorize and remember. It's the discussion that he has with the Church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 12, about what we call a thorn in the flesh. We really don't know exactly what it is. It could have been a physical malady, probably was, or it could have been just the work of Satan against his ministry. I mean, Paul didn't have an easy way to go. Everywhere he went, yeah, he preached the gospel, but also had great opposition. They wanted to kill him. In any case, so Paul has something that is more... Personal, Some kind of personal oppression at the very least or a personal illness that is difficult for him. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. And in 2 Corinthians 9, he prays three times, not once, not twice, but three times. And this is the Apostle Paul doing the work of the ministry. He, he prays that this would be relieved from him. And what is Christ's answer? His answer is... My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The perfect here is the idea of a maturing thing. Now listen, you and me would look at this and say, uh, I think the best thing to do would be to take whatever this is, this difficulty, to take it away, because he's got to do the work of the ministry. But actually... Paul recognizes this is even better because it's reminding him of his weakness. He's not strong in and of himself. That's the point. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my Weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, this glorifies God. It demonstrates how good and great God is in overcoming whatever burden, whatever difficulty, whatever weakness that you might have, because you recognize I can't make it on my own. And when you accomplish something, it is then the power of Christ that rests on you to give you a sound mind. He says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And here's where I think it gives us a clue. I think it's all of the above. That is, both a personal illnesses that he may have had to struggle through, but also all the hardships and the persecutions. Calamities, I think, is perhaps referring to some of his own physical weaknesses and so forth. Because in that state, he says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You want a great prayer life? Have some crisis occur in your life, right? It it it, it makes you recognize that you, you really are weak. And you're insufficient in and of yourself. You have to look to another source of strength, and guess where that source is. It is Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 15. I think Naomi helped me with this verse last week. I'm remembering it. but I touched on it, but I want to sh- I'll just look at something quick from this chapter. Here's Jesus teaching about I'm the vine and you're the branches, John 15. And that connection is, is critical for a disciple T- to recognize that y- you must be in Christ, if you will, or by this analogy, in the vine, the branch of it. And he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do no Thing, right? In Christ. This is certainly appropriate in a spiritual sense. We cannot accomplish anything apart from Christ. And whatever ministry you might be called to in, in the occupation of your life, whatever it might be, you're not going to accomplish anything without Christ. It is Christ who will bring about that fruit if you will, in your life. It is accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. Drop down to, just for sake of time, verse 16, he talks about choosing his disciples. Verse 16, he said, you didn't choose me. Well, didn't they, Jesus called them, didn't they decide to follow? Yes, But ultimately, the reason people follow Christ, and this is critical to know, he says, but I chose you, and that's what matters. I tell people often, it doesn't matter so much, do you believe in Jesus, but does he believe in you? Yeah, you chose Jesus, but did he choose you? And he does what? He appoints you, this is the idea of calling, or in their case, apostleship, but whatever he has called us to do, this is for everyone that is in Christ. Christ chooses you and then he appoints you. He appoints you to do what? To bear fruit and that your fruit will be abiding and that you would be able to pray for his will to be done. This is the idea of praying in my Father's name in accordance to my will that he will give it to you. Why? In the end, he will be glorified. This fruit bearing from this analogy is used a lot in Scripture to describe those things that are produced in the life of the believer. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control by the fruit Of the Holy Spirit. It's an expression of His divine work, His mighty power in you to the praise of the glorious grace that is in Christ. I might add here there may be seasons of fruitfulness in somebody's life, there may be times in which you have greater expressions of it than others. Uh, I understand that. But there will always be a manifestation of it in the life of the believer. And this is one of the ways in which you can examine your own heart uh, or recognize it in the life of others. Because Christ has chosen and appointed. Chosen and appointed what? That you would bear fruit. That is the fruit of the Spirit. It isn't dormant forever. There may be seasons, I agree, greater fruit in some people's life, if you will, than others' expressions of it, but there will be an expression of it. And continual barrenness, where from the Spirit this is not produced in your life, that is an earmark of someone who is doing what? According to John 15, not abiding in Jesus Christ, and they will be taken away, and the analogy is burned. Because why They aren't really attached to, To the vine. Jesus would tell his disciples in Matthew chapter 7 to beware. Beware of false teachers and false doctrine. They come to you as sheep in sheep's clothing. In other words, they look like they are part of the flock, part of the fold. They look like they're Christians on the outside, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. How will you recognize them? Well, bad teaching is one thing for sure, but ultimately you're going to recognize them then by their fruit. You make that righteous judgment in that examination. And he would tell them this illustration, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Of course not. There's real fruit on the vine and the fig tree. And so every healthy tree... Bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Pride in your own self-sufficiency can be a great key that you're not exhibiting the humility that is produced by the fruit of the Spirit. The righteous response is to recognize your own inability and own, um, uh, your, your lack of self-sufficiency, which will cause you to look somewhere else. And can I point you to and back to our text and that is Christ. Verse 6. 21-6. Not only remember your own weakness, but on the positive side, remember the strength of Christ. This is a lesson that his disciples then need to know, and us as well, and as he kind of recreates this event from the very beginning, duplicates it here at the end, he tells them essentially the same thing, how to fish. He says... Verse 6, cast on the right side of the boat and there you will find some. And of course, they did it and there was such a great quantity, note here in the text, they were not able to haul it in. It was very difficult. Here, Jesus demonstrates his his sovereignty over nature and the sovereignty over all things. Again, we, we have a tendency to think we're going to accomplish God's work through our efforts, through our skill, and through our abilities. And as we've already mentioned, we recognize that we cannot. God will, however, use the work of sinners and saints for his ultimate goals and purposes. This is an interesting miracle here that happens. They're out all night, no fish, and he just says, Put it on the other side of the boat. (laughs) Where did the fish come from? He told them to jump in the net. Why didn't he tell them just to jump in the boat? You know? Or even save some time, just have them jump on shore. He could have done all of that. But here, God. Purposes to use the work of men strengthened by his power in obedience to his will to accomplish his purposes. Now, I, I don't know the reason why God does what he does, how he does it, other than one thing. I can say this He does all things for his glory. And because I might think of doing it a different way, it really doesn't matter what I think about any of that. What matters is what God thinks and what he has ordained. To be accomplished. Here you see Jesus, the Sovereign Lord, and and as um, Jeremy read so beautifully, just tied in, just providentially uh, about God and His manifold works and what He does from Psalm one hundred four. Wasn't that great? You, you read that it. It is God who accomplishes all of us, including. You know, it has feeding the animals. You think, okay, well, the animals going out and getting their own food. Ultimately, no, they're not. It is all by God, accomplishing. And as Annie mentioned this morning in, in our study, all things right now, the very atoms that we think are holding things together, it isn't. It's Christ. It is Christ who's upholding all things by the word of his power. Any good and perfect gift that you might get comes from where? It comes from God. It is God the creator who allows physical light to shine even this day and it is God who will allow spiritual light to shine in the hearts of men. Here they're fishing all night trying to accomplish their purposes and God... uh, allows them to see their own lack of ability and hear Christ in a single word says, cast the net and it's accomplished. It is through the strength of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and alone that you will accomplish anything, even the mundane tasks. That, that's what the call is for the disciple. Okay, you say, well, I can, I can uh, pick this up or, or accomplish this. No, you can't. It's a call to look to Christ who is our sufficiency. Paul would tell the church at, in, verse, in uh, Philippians 4 that he could do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the attitude of the, of the believer. He said, well, here's an impossible task well, that's great. Christ will strengthen me to accomplish the task to which He has called me. Th- they had an impossible task. There's no fish in the water. They've been out there proving it all night long. And one obedience to Christ is they haul in a load of fish that is greater than perhaps they've ever caught before, or at least certainly that night, because they caught nothing. If you want to turn to this before we move on, or I'll read it for you either from Colossians chapter 1, the first chapter in Colossians. Those that are in Christ, disciples, who are called and appointed by Christ to produce this fruit, if you will, in that analogy, they are called to fulfill their purpose and given an divine enablement by Christ a sufficient source of fuel or energy to power the purposes to which God has called us. Paul talks about this mystery about Christ and the union of the believer with Christ in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, he calls it a mystery. Mystery just simply means it was previously unrevealed. Uh, there were hints of it all along the way, but now here is a clarification. When Christ comes, he teaches his disciples, as he's teaching them now, right? He teaches them this and makes this known, that is, revealed. That's where the idea of revelation comes from. He reveals this truth to him. What? What What mystery? What was um, Previously unknown, but now is clearly known. That's the idea of revealed, verse 26, to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Here it is, underline that, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you're in Christ, Christ is in you, that is the hope of glory, that is the source and sustenance of your strength, it is Christ in you, it is the hope of glory. And so, here on one side, you recognize in and of yourself, in your flesh, you're totally incapable of accomplishing anything. At any moment, something can come crashing down, but on the other side, in Christ, you have. The hope of glory, the power of God, if you will. And so this is what Paul then preaches, verse 28, this hope of glory. In him, he says, we him we proclaim. This is, this is why the key is always Christ, always pointing to Christ. Him we proclaim. We warn everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom and wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ so that that's where your source of energy and strength and building up will be. It is in Christ. You warn them that there is no salvation outside of Christ, that, it, that, that you shouldn't uh, rely on, on any of your own strength but look to Christ. And listen how he phrases this because I think it's key in teaching this concept, verse 29. He says, For this I toil, He's struggling. He, he's working hard, right, with what he's called to do. This I toil. But notice what energy source that he's working with. I'm struggling with all energy that he powerfully works in me. Believe it, this is the unique dyna- dynamic. You want to mature and grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord? This is a supernatural work in your heart. It is a supernatural work when he calls you. It is a supernatural work, as we might call it, sanctifies you. That is, becoming more and more like Christ. But the hope is Christ in you. It is the powerful work. It is the energy to which you accomplish whatever task he's called you to do doesn't mean it won't be hard. In fact, the hard, as Paul talked about earlier, as we mentioned in 2 Corinthians 12, that, that hardship of whatever, it helps you recognize that you need to rely on Christ for help. Fishermen here in our chapter, they're engaged in this activity of fishing. And Jesus tells them to put down their Nets to actively participate in this process, but not by their own mind, but in obedience to his word. It was hard, it was difficult, it was a struggle. In fact, in the end, when they caught this net of fish, they could barely drag it onto the boat. It was brought about by the sovereign word of Christ. And that's what should be remembered. Back to our text in verse 7. All of a sudden, recognizing their weaknesses, their strength in Christ alone, who at his command filled their net. John, that is the one who's described, the, the disciple of Jesus' love, he identifies and he says, it is Lord. Or as Jeremy might like to say, it is Yahweh. <laughs> that's what he's saying. Thanks for translating, Jeremy. That's what he's saying. This is the sovereign God. Of course it is. This is the sovereign God of the universe. He confesses. Jesus is Lord. That's what he means. In fact, Peter gets it too. He recognizes all of a sudden that they, they couldn't identify him in any other way, but at his very word, and then this immediately happens. They knew this had to be a miracle done by God. Peter, as the text reads on, he jumps into the sea, just, and, he, and he throws a garment on himself. He would have had an undergarment, but he throws another one, probably just to be in more reverence, because he's going to Jesus. Now, he, he's a little bit um, irrational in his act. I understand that. They're they're not necessarily endorsing any of that. It's just showing this attitude. When he sees the Lord, he abandons everything else, and he's got to be with them. And even doing something in making it more difficult to swim, he puts his outer garment on because he wants to be more presentable and reverent. It it isn't necessarily a calculated event. It's just something that motivates his heart. He He sees Christ, and he has to have Christ does so in reverence as well. The other disciples, verse 8, they're not criticized for not acting like him. This is just a narrative that describes what what happened. It's characteristic of him. But the other disciples uh, are are a little bit more rational on that. um, And so they hang on to this load of fish and they drag it and they were bringing it to shore. They recognize the sovereignty of Christ as well in all things, that he indeed is Lord, and he is the one who commanded their catch here to be full and to be filled. They're bringing this bountiful harvest and confessing that Jesus is Lord. Why is it important to confess Jesus is Lord? (coughs) Here, I'll point to a familiar passage you could turn to if you wish Philippians chapter 2. Thomas said, My Lord and my God, in another setting. Here, in this third setting, it is John who identifies, It is the Lord. And Peter responds by trying to get to shore as quickly as he could. But it's significant and important to recognize that indeed Jesus is Lord for a major purpose, and it is the purpose of all things. You'll find it in Philippians 2, if you note that section here, Jesus takes on human flesh, humbles himself, walks among us, lives, dies, rises again, And therefore, verse 9 is where I'm going to key in at on Philippians 2. God highly exalts him and gives him a name that is above every name. What's the name? Jesus is Lord. It said that every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is sovereign God of the universe. That is their confession. And why is it important to recognize that Jesus is Lord? Because it glorifies the Father. Notice how it finishes out. To the glory of God the Father. Recognizing and confessing and making a statement that Jesus Lord, is Lord isn't primarily about uh, getting away from being judged. Preaching the gospel And calling people to repent and believe and confess that Jesus is Lord isn't primarily about a command that we have been given to to go preach the gospel. It is primarily about the glory of God. God would be glorified when people point to Christ and truly believe and confess that he is Lord. And to say he's Lord is saying that he is the sovereign over all things and your submission submitted to his obedience recognizing you, your insufficiency in and of yourself and the sufficiency only in Christ. Here's how MacArthur summarizes this concept in one of his articles. He says it boils down to this. To live without salvation is to deny Christ. And to deny Christ is the greatest affront possible to God. I think that's well said. It is the one sin that is unforgivable. If a person continues in, in uh, if a person continues in unbelief, that's an unforgivable sin. In fact, that's the major sin of man. Jesus said in John 16 that He would send the Holy Spirit to convict the world of, of sin. What sin? Because they don't believe in Me. The greatest sin that man can commit is a failure to believe in <coughs> Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's to say that He's not God. He's not Savior, he's not to be worshipped, he's not Lord. And all that dishonors the Father. I agree with that. It is our, not only our lips that would affirm that, but it is our life that would submit to his Lordship in all. Finally, I think I've got this about finished up, Now, recognizing indeed Jesus is Lord, what relationship do we have with this resurrected Christ? You'll find it in verse 9 in our text. Jesus is in a glorified state. You might think that he really has better things to do than to mess with these disciples in particular or perhaps you individually as well. But you would be Mistaken. Here, verse 9 of chapter 21, well, they get to land, they get out, and what do they see already? A charcoal fire is already in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Uh, by the way, he didn't need them to bring him fish or make them bread. <laughs> he spoke, and there it is. He already had it all set up. The, in this miracle he has for this prepared for him, He is taking care of the needs of his disciples even in this circumstance. Sovereign Lord, yet he takes care of his disciples as a servant. You remember he taught them this lesson. Prior to the cross, they're all in the upper room thinking about how who's going to get the best deal in heaven. (laughs) Who's going to get the the chief seats? Who's going to be in the seat of authority and power? And why they were debating all of that They had a servant under the table washing their feet and all of a sudden they noticed who it was. It was the sovereign God of the universe. And Jesus says, If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet, serve in one another. Here Christ demonstrated even in this glorified state. He's taking care of of his own disciples, he has time for you. And he tells them and he invites them in and says, verse 10, notice he says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Again, does he actually need the sovereign God of the universe, them to bring their own fish that he just told them to catch? No, but he does invite his servants to participate in the work of the ministry. You guys that have little kids, isn't it fun for them to participate in making things, whether it's dinner or a little craft or whatever it is? You invite them so they can learn. And also there's a certain joy in being part of that process. That's the imagery here. He enga- engages them in. You know what is really engaging? That I can sit up here and, and, and um, uh, just spout off some words and it actually helps people to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and in a miraculous way, some people to actually one day confess Christ as Lord and hear back and say, oh, well, that really helped me. I I understand where it comes from and I understand also that that this is the work of Christ in me, the hope of glory. What a great joy. He invites you to also participate in the work of the ministry. In, In their case, this this." Net, verse 11, it was, it, was, it was so large here, and it was full of fish, it says 153 of them, and yet the net wasn't torn. There's been a lot of ink spilled on those 153. I'm not going to waste your time, because all of it is speculation. We're not told why this particular number was chosen, other than this is a real narrative, and these are real fishermen. And they paid attention to what they had. There was an actual specific number that were caught. They're told to be fishers of men by way of analogy. And there is a specific number that will be caught and will be brought in. And when it is full, it will be done and so will come the end. This is what Christ has taught. And beyond that, this net in this case was not broken it sufficiently held all of the weight which it was large who knows exactly i would e- estimates have this between 3 to 400 pounds is what this might be and imagine the nets themselves would be wet and here peter brings them in and he drags it in incredibly strong fisherman by himself dragging it the rest of the way And what's the invitation? Verse 12, come have breakfast. Christ invites you to commune with him. Lord of glory, resurrected state, doesn't need them to bring anything, but invites them to do so and invites them to to join in fellowship. One of the reasons we have this table, one, is to also look forward to what Christ said. He said, uh, I'm going to commune with each of you in a physical way in the eternal state. And we do this looking forward to that communion with Christ. I remember I played a lot of music with my father. played gospel and bluegrass music. Somehow this one was in my mind when I'm reading through this text, so bear with me, I'll just share it with you. Maybe you've heard this song. Jesus has a table spread where the saints of God are fed. He invites his chosen people come and dine. With his manna he doth feed and supplies your every need. Oh, tis sweet to sup with Jesus all the time. Come and dine, the master calleth, come and dine. You may feast at Jesus' table all the time. He who fed the multitude turned the water into wine, to the hungry calleth now, come and dine. Did the disciples came to land, thus obeying Christ's command, for the master called unto them, come and dine. There they found their heart's desire, bread and fish upon a fire. And thus he satisfies the hungry every time. Soon the lamb will take his bride to be ever at his side. All the host of heaven will be asem- assembled be. Oh, twill be a glorious sight, all the saints in spotless white. And with Jesus they will feast eternally. Come and dine, the master calleth. Come and die. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're thankful that you have invited us into your kingdom. And though we are not sufficient in and of ourselves, you are fully sufficient and will satisfy. I pray for myself and your people that we'll increasingly put our trust in you and look forward to uh, a perfect communion, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment to think (coughs) on these things privately where you're at, and then we'll close in a word of prayer and benediction. Father, I pray that you will grant us a <coughs> revelation of the truth of who Christ is. He will s- continually satisfy all who come by faith. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
0: So stand and turn to 668 in our hymnals. 668. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Open the gates of thanksgiving, and I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and are becoming my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy. Endures forever. Amen and amen. We're dismissed.